0: There is a battle to be fought and there is a victory to be won and Paul has fought that battle and Paul has won that victory. Nothing stopped him from preaching the gospel, not hardship, not persecution, not discouraging circumstances or anything else you could possibly think of. This man's perspective was as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. He was going to suffer for the gospel, whatever it took. He saw himself as in a living battle against spiritual enemies and he fought it and he won.
1: Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible-teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogi. Dr. Brogi is Senior Pastor at Community Bible Church of Buford, South Carolina. Well, today we begin a look at the last part of 2 Timothy, the epistle the Apostle Paul began writing in his last days from a jail in Rome. This letter to Timothy, a godly young man who Paul brought to faith in Jesus Christ, ends with an acknowledgment of Paul's perseverance and a request of Timothy to join him in Rome. We also are given some insight into some of the people who had been with Paul. But let's go ahead now and begin with a look at Paul's perseverance and an encouragement to all of us to fight the good fight for the Lord Jesus Christ.
0: Many months ago we began a study in the pastoral epistles. There are three in the New Testament, First and Second Timothy and Titus. We've taken them in chronological order. First, we did 1 Timothy, then Titus, and then we come to 2 Timothy, Paul's last will and testament. Now, I believe that if someone from the first century came into the 21st century, if they knew Christ, they probably would not recognize many of the churches in our day. Because we have adopted so many things out of tradition, out of... um, just our own fallen human minds rather than from Holy Scripture. And so we've been studying these pastorals to bring into our thinking what God says about government, about worship, about how the church should function. Unfortunately, in many places today, the slogan is, We've always done it this way, and tradition takes authority over what God has said. Now, here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, let me remind you of the context. Paul is about ready to face death. He is there in a prison in Rome, and I want you to see him in that dirty, dark, dank prison about to be executed. He says, I have fought the good fight. He has lived his life well. I finished the race. And in this letter, there's a very personal and tender appeal to Timothy, his son in the faith, but not just to Timothy, but to us as well. Now, one final time, let's remember the context of this chapter and and refresh ourselves with an overview of the book. We've seen it divides into four major sections. In chapter one, the theme is to guard the gospel. It is a gospel that we are to guard because it is a priceless treasure that we are to value. In chapter two, the theme is to suffer for the gospel. Why? Because the gospel to the proud is a stumbling block and quite often it invites persecution. In chapter three, we are to continue in the gospel because timothy it's the truth of god and you don't need any new novelty just continue in what god has given and finally in chapter 4 we're charged to preach the gospel why because it is the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes and so the church of the 21st century desperately needs to hear the message, we need a new generation of Timothys who will guard the gospel, who will suffer for it, who will continue in it, and who with all their might and strength given by the Spirit of God, who will preach it. Now with that said, let's read a portion of our text this morning. Second Timothy chapter 4, Paul has just commanded Timothy to preach the word, and he says in verse 6, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Now as I've read this portion of Scripture over and over and over again, I'm impressed by its timeliness and its timelessness. Because Paul is preaching not just to Timothy, but to us. He looks down the corridors of time into what he refers to in chapter 3 as the last days. And like Timothy's day, our day is filled with moral and theological confusion and heresy and apostasy. And So God wants to put some steel in this man's spine by putting some truth in his heart. He wants Timothy and us to be immovable. Now I've told you over and over and over again, there are two monosyllables that have struck me for years. I've had them posted in my study in front of me for nearly a decade now. Two monosyllables in the Greek, "Suder," but you, but you, Timothy, are to be different. Four times over in this letter, he tells them, you, Timothy, are to be different. It doesn't matter what public opinion may be it doesn't matter what the latest novelty may be you timothy are to guard the gospel you're to suffer for it you're to continue in it and you are to preach it and that's the kind of courage and the kind of backbone that god's people need today now here's paul for over 30 years He has faithfully preached the good news. He has planted churches. He has defended the truth. He has consolidated the work. And now he's at the very end of his life. He can say, I've fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. The only thing that remains for him is the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to him and all who love his appearing. And if tradition is correct, and there's excellent evidence from history to affirm it, Paul is going to be executed under the order of Nero. And so this man, who's been consumed with the gospel, cares about what will happen to the gospel. Again, from a divine point of view, he knows nothing can prevail against the church, that the gates of hell will not come against Christ's church. But he knows from a human perspective that God uses ordinary people, men and women, who are courageous and who are willing faithfully to stand for truth. And so in this book, he is basically helping Timothy... To stand for truth because Paul knows that the devil hates the gospel. Do you know that? The devil absolutely hates the gospel of Jesus Christ. He will try to pervert it in the mouth of preachers. He will try to frighten God's men from preaching it with persecution. He will try to persuade some of us that we need some new fancy novelty to build the kingdom of God. But God has a method of building His kingdom and it is through the preaching of the gospel. Now I want you to notice how verse 6 begins with a little three-letter word. For, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Now, we saw this word for already back in verse 3 when Timothy is commanded to preach the word. For or because a time will come when they won't want to hear it. Timothy, a time will come when men will just want to have their ears tickled, and that's all the more reason for you to preach the gospel. But now I want you to see the link between verses 5 and 6. But it's for you, Timothy, you are to fulfill your ministry, you're to continue in what you're doing, for, because... My ministry is about to come to an end. It was all the more crucial for Timothy to fulfill his ministry because the apostles was about to end. And so as Joshua followed Moses, as Elisha followed Elijah, Timothy was to follow Paul. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. and The time of my departure has come. Now Paul uses for us two vivid figures of speech to portray his coming death. One is a sacrificial term. The other is a nautical term. First, he says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering, liking himself to the drink offering of the Old Testament. Now, if you'd gone into that place of execution, it would not have been a pleasant sight to see. Quite honestly, it would have been sickening to see them take that great apostle, bind his hands, put his head on the chopping block, and to remove his head. And if all you saw was a head in a basket and a limp body, you would not have seen much. But that is not the way Paul viewed the end of his life. He viewed himself as a drink offering. He saw the block as an altar and himself as an offering. Now, to really appreciate the terminology he's using, you have to understand its usage in the Old Testament. Over and over and over again, in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, God refers to the drink offering. It was the final step in the sacrificial system where the priest would take about a pint of wine and he would pour it over that hot, sizzling sacrifice there on the brazen altar. And the wine, as you know, would immediately be turned into steam. And it would come, Numbers 15 says, into the nostrils of God as a sweet and fragrant, soothing aroma. Now, Paul views his life like that. Now, throughout the epistles, he describes himself as a sacrifice. For instance, when he wrote The Church at Rome, he said, But I've written very boldly to you in some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given to me from God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest of the gospel of God, that my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So in this chapter, Paul likens himself to a priest, whom by his life is a living sacrifice, he gave everything in which to give the gospel to the Gentiles. He uses the same terminology in Philippians 2. And if you know anything about Paul's life, you know he sacrificed everything to preach the gospel. If you haven't read it lately, read 2 Corinthians 11, because there is a description of a man who is stoned, beaten, imprisoned, shipwrecked, mugged every possible heartache that could come on a human came upon Paul. But as a living sacrifice, he would not give up. He never climbed off the altar. Now is the capstone, is the final step. Paul is about to have his life taken. And he views this like the drink offering of the Old Testament, where like a soothing aroma coming into the presence of the Lord. Paul will go home and be with the Lord. In effect, Paul is saying, Caesar is not going to kill me. God in his sovereignty and providence is going to allow me to give my life as a drink offering. I've been a living sacrifice. I'm about to become a drink offering. And so Paul recognizes it is so imminent that he even describes it in a present tense as if it's already begun. So the first figure that he uses is that from the language of sacrifice. The second comes from the language of navigation. Look at verse 6 again. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Now this word departure in the original literally means to loose. It was used of the loosing or the untying of a boat from its, ma- from its dock. So literally, the time of my loosing has come. And it's really a beautiful picture of the Christian. Already the anchor has been pulled up, the robes have been loosed, and the boat is about to set sail. The time of my loosing has come. And it's important that we view death as the Apostle Paul did, because he looked on death as a departure from one world to the next. Just as the children of Israel departed from Egypt and came into the promised land, even so, Paul recognized that he would depart from this body and go into the presence of God in heaven absent from the body, present with the Lord. And it's a beautiful picture from the realm of sailing that really helps us to see what happens at death for the believer. Now, it's interesting because this same word is used outside of the Bible in the realm of tanning, when a man would loosen the tent stakes and pull up the tent and carry it on his back or his camel and, and move to another location. And so it's not all that surprising that Paul also likens the body to a tent. When he wrote to the Corinthians, he said, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Paul compares the death of a believer to taking up his tent. It's something that's very temporary, this body, but he looks for something very permanent. He uses the word building, a very permanent structure. That is our glorified body in heaven. The other apostles use similar language. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1, and I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. And so Peter speaks of death as the laying aside of my earthly dwelling. And so death for the Christian is laying aside this physical body, this spaceship that, the spacesuit that holds us to get a new body. So here's Peter. Lay aside... My earthly dwelling. That's what I'm going to do. Why? Because I'm going home to be with Jesus Christ. Death for the Christian is just a change of address. Now, if you've been saved, when you die, the person inside this tent, inside this earthly spacesuit, immediately is ushered into the presence of Jesus Christ. Though your body obviously is in the ground, and so it is described as sleeping. But don't let anyone ever tell you that body, soul, and spirit is asleep in the ground, as some falsely have taught, because that is not true. The Bible is very clear. Only the body is asleep. And what an appropriate metaphor, because the body someday will wake up. God will give us a new resurrection body on that great waking up day. Paul, when he wrote to the church at Thessalonica said, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Now, what happens when you get to heaven? Do you have a body? Well, you're awaiting the resurrection of the one in the ground. However, it appears from the revelation that you have some kind of temporary body because you see saints in heaven before the resurrection takes place. It obviously hasn't happened yet. And they're wearing robes well you got to hang the robe on something but in either case god is very clear that he will bring the departed spirits of those gone home to be with the lord and in the twinkling of an eye he will reunite it with that sleeping body wherever it is whatever has happened to it god will reunite it in a moment's time and the bible says for this we say to you by the word of the lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now take that biblical theology and go back to our passage here in verse 6. And the time of my departure has come. Again, he's using a nautical term of a ship tied up into a harbor that is about ready to be put out to sea. Now, Paul's conception of death is so different from some of the popular notions that are preached in our day. So often at funerals, it's been said, oh, dear brother so-and-so, he's been out in the storms of life serving God all these years, and now he's being brought back into the harbor for safety. I want to tell you, that's not the picture God gives. In fact, he gives just the opposite. Listen, it may be stirring emotionally to hear something like that, But listen, I'd rather be stirred with truth than with emotion. And God is very clear that absent from the body, present with the Lord, that our death is like the untying of a ship, that we've actually been tied down in the harbor and God is about ready to loose us. We've been tied to this earth and God is about ready to take us to another place. And the place he's going to take us to is so wonderful, so fantastic, so awesome, so indescribable that when Paul is given a revelation by God and he gets just a glimpse of glory, God has to give him a thorn in the flesh lest he boast about it a place where there's no crying, no pain, no sorrow, a place where the Lord Jesus Christ himself sovereignly reigns. And so Paul is saying, look, I've been tied down in this harbor, but I'm about to be loosed. And so here in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 6, he sees the end of his life as being poured out as a drink offering, ascending into God's presence as a sweet aroma, and the beginning of another journey as the ship is loosed out to sea. I am already being poured out is a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Now, Nero may have thought that he was in control, but Paul knew better. Paul saw himself not simply facing an execution, he saw himself facing a release. Paul was reminding Timothy, when that day comes, and Timothy would be there. Timothy was about ready to come to Rome, as we will see in the rest of this chapter. Timothy, when that day comes, don't sorrow for me because I'll be home with Christ as a sweet, fragrant fragrant drink offering. And let me say to you who have lost loved ones, if they truly know the Lord, don't grieve for them. Don't waste a single tear. Now, you may grieve for yourself and sorrow for others, but they will be more alive and more happy and more fulfilled than they have ever been. Now, setting this verse back in its context, Paul is giving us another reason for Timothy to keep this command to preach the gospel and fulfill his ministry. Now, Paul is about ready to move off the scene. Timothy is going to take his place. And so now Paul, by personal testimony, is going to give him a fourth reason as to why he should preach the gospel. And to do that, in verse 8, he's going to look back at his life. In verse 7, he's going to look back at his life. In verse 8, he's going to look ahead of his life. And then in verses 9 and following, he's going to look around and, and show us what God has done. First, let's consider the apostle looking back. Before he goes on this great voyage, before it begins, he looks back over his ministry of 30 years. And when he describes it, he doesn't describe it boastfully, just factually, and he uses three terse terms to explain it. Verse 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. Paul summed up his life in ministry using three metaphors he's already used in this epistle. That of a soldier, that of an athlete, and that of a steward. He says, first, I have fought the good fight. Paul has been a good soldier. And now he's asking Timothy to be the same. He has fought a battle. There is a battle to be fought, and there is a victory to be won. And Paul has fought that battle, and Paul has won that victory Nothing stopped him from preaching the gospel, not hardship, not persecution, not discouraging circumstances, or anything else you could possibly think of. This man's perspective was as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, he was going to suffer for the gospel, whatever it took. He saw himself as in a living battle against spiritual enemies, and he fought it and he won. And so, like a good soldier, he fought the fight. Secondly, we also learn, like a disciplined athlete, he ran the race. He adds, I have finished the course. The Christian life is not only like a battle, it is like a race. Now, if you remember, several years before, Paul had gathered the Ephesian elders together. They're on that beach at Miletus. Remember, Ephesus is the place where Timothy now is, where this letter is going to be received. And Paul expressed years before his desire to run well to the end. Do you remember what he said? But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, in order that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Now, both the verb and the noun used in Acts chapter 20 is identical to the verb and the noun used here in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And what I like about Paul is he never quit. Now, remember, Paul, when he spoke to the Ephesian elders, was already an old man. He wrote to Philemon six years before he wrote 2 Timothy, and he referred to himself as Paul the Aged. It'd be kind of like today, a, a 70-year-old man standing on this platform and saying, Brethren, please, I, I want to finish the course that God has given me. I want to run well right to the end. I want to fulfill the ministry that the Lord has for me. Now, most men who are 70 are looking for a rocking chair. They're looking for an age of leisure. They're looking for a time to travel, to sit back and do nothing for God. And they say, my service is over. Let the next generation do it. When in reality, from God's perspective, the way you model for the next generation, what they ought to do is you live well right to the end. My dear friend Bill Bright on his deathbed was working on 50 projects for the sake of Jesus Christ the week the Lord took him home to be be with him at 81 years old. So here's Paul. He writes. He is expressing his heart to the elders at Miletus. And he says to you guys, listen, I want to finish the course well. He doesn't know if he has three years or 13 years. He wants to finish right to the end. But now the end has come. And so he can say, I have finished the course. He touched all the bases and all that God had planned for him to do was done. The goal had now become... A reality so like a good soldier he fought the fight like a disciplined athlete he ran the race but third I want you to notice like a faithful steward he kept the faith now the third image in verse 7 is that of a steward I've kept the faith now throughout this letter Paul emphasized the importance of guarding the truth the treasure the deposit the gospel and what he calls here the faith that body of truth that we call the Bible Paul is affirming that he has been a good steward he is saying I have safely preserved the gospel treasure. He never veered from any of the great doctrines that God had given him and the rest of the apostles because Paul's heart was not to please men, but to please the God who saved him. And that's not only an apostle's job, that's a pastor's job. In fact, that's every Christian's job. The work of every Christian is to fight a fight To run a race to guard a treasure it will involve labor sacrifice and even danger at times but paul had run it right to the end no regrets none whatsoever now it wasn't easy most of the time paul was not popular but he remained faithful as a good steward so there's paul looking back like a good soldier he fought the fight Like a disciplined athlete, he ran the race. Like a good steward, he kept the faith. Now, I also want you to notice the Apostle Paul looking ahead. Look now, if you will, in verse 8. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me. He will award it to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, I learned two things immediately from this verse. First, that the Apostle's life will be vindicated. Paul had come to the end of his life and he says, all that remains for me is the crown of righteousness. Now this word crown, stephanos in the Greek, was not that of the kind of crown a king would wear, a more permanent structure, but actually one of those temporary laurel green wreaths that a Greek or Roman athlete would get for successfully participating in the, in the games. And Paul describes the stephanos the crown of righteousness, which the righteous judge will give to him. Now, this word righteousness continually falls from Paul's pens in his epistles, and it's the word for salvation, for justification. Paul, though, in this context, is speaking of a righteous vindication, a day when the God of the universe, when God will declare him not guilty, Now, among other things, Paul is making a deliberate contrast here between the sentence he is about to receive from Nero and the vindication he is about to get from God. Nero will declare him guilty and condemn him to death. But there is going to come a magnificent reversal when the Lord, the righteous judge, will declare him not guilty. And because he is the righteous judge who will give the crown of righteousness, though Nero may say guilty, God will say not guilty. Now, let me tell you something. There have been many men and women throughout the church age who've been condemned, criticized, ostracized, detested as hateful, divisive, and everything else because they stood for what was right. And while men may mock them, and while men may say they are wrong, there's going to be a great reversal one day when the Lord, the righteous judge, says not guilty, and he gives to them the crown of righteousness which is an important reminder to me as a pastor, that if you please men and displease the Lord, it doesn't matter who you please. But if you please God and displease men, it doesn't matter whom you displease. It's not really what the world thinks. In the end, what will really matter is what God thinks. So first, I'm reminded that this life will be vindicated. Secondly, not only will the apostle's life be vindicated, the apostle's life will be rewarded. He speaks here in verse 8 of the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Now, please note that Paul tells us that God will award it to me on that day but not only to me, to all who have loved his appearing. Now, underline and underscore in your thinking that word award because it speaks of something that is earned, something that is achieved.
1: What Paul is addressing, of course, is not the achieving of salvation because none can earn salvation. It's bought for us by Jesus Christ who died on a cross. Rather, it's the earning of rewards in heaven to those who are already believers. And we'll expand on this on tomorrow's program. To listen again to this final message in the series on 2 Timothy, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program 2TM9. We hope and pray this series has been of value to you. If so, won't you consider becoming a foundation partner? Foundation partners come alongside Search the Scriptures with a gift of at least $25 a month. And it is our foundation partners that help us expand this teaching. For more information, call us at 877-787-7478. Thank you. Join us again tomorrow as we continue our look at the final verses from 2 Timothy and Search the Scriptures.